0: to Refuge, a podcast brought to you by Solidarity. I'm Izzy Ponsonby, Director of Outreach and today I'm talking to Stuart from Rainbow Migration, formerly the UK and Lesbian and Gay Immigration Group. And um, Thanks so much for joining me today Stuart. Thank you for having me. Yeah so can you start off by telling me a bit about Rainbow Migration and the work that you do?
1: Uh, yeah well we support LGBTQI plus people through the asylum and immigration system uh, so I'm a support worker uh, for people who are seeking asylum. Um, we also provide uh, legal advice and we do other work around campaigns and training and support to other organisations as well.
0: Amazing. So what kind of issues are people specifically seeking asylum that are LGBTQI+, what kind of issues do they face in the UK asylum process?
1: Um, I mean, there, there's so much. They, uh, I think the biggest issue is, I, I mean, there's so many big issues that surround accommodation, um, they can be housed in accommodation, basically with uh, people who other people who are seeking asylum, but also people who might be from their home country that have uh, that are homophobic or transphobic. Um, so they don't often feel safe, especially in like hotels where there's lots of people. Around proving that they are LGBTQI plus, it's the Home Office uh, really like stereotypes, and yeah, they 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 uh, have a. An idea of, of what it means to be uh, queer. So having a same-sex partner is going to make you more likely to prove that you are gay or, or lesbian or bisexual. Um, but obviously not everyone wants to be in a relationship or can be in a relationship. If they're housed in um, parts of the country where there aren't many LGBT groups, then they obviously can't prove that they're part of any organisation. The money, obviously, that they receive at about 40 pounds a week it's not enough to really go out and socialise with other LGBTQI plus people. Um, yes, yeah, so there's there's a massive system of disbelief. They still face homophobia here.
0: So that's obviously, it's all such a difficult situation. We've talked quite a lot on these podcasters about what it means to be a refugee generally and the struggle they face. Obviously, th- these are all additional struggles on top of the struggles that anybody that's not in this particular group as a refugee faces, which just is really awful. So The work that you do, can you tell me specifically the different ways that you help them?
1: Uh, Yeah, so as a support worker, um, I mostly provide emotional support. Um, We're still all working from home uh, from the pandemic, Uh, but we run, well, I run the men's support group. We also have a women's support group and a trans support group. So yeah, I I mostly speak with people over the phone or communicate by email. Uh, I can help them with issues around their housing or accessing healthcare. And we also help them find solicitors as well. And we have a legal advisor that can talk to them initially and just guide them through the process to start with.
0: So is this, so this is before they've um, reached their asylum processes as well, they're kind of waiting for their asylum hearings?
1: Uh, yeah, so we can talk to people um, if they're thinking about claiming asylum, um, and then yeah, from the pro- from when they start to their claim, um, up until they get granted refugee status where they're with.
0: Okay, that's really cool. So uh, what kind of issues specifically are you helping them? Obviously, well-being and housing is kind of a big one, but can you just talk to me a bit more in detail about?
1: Uh, So I think most of my service users are fairly isolated. Um, So it's a lot of just being there for them. Um, I think helping them talk about anything they want to talk about and also preparing them for speaking with the Home Office. I mean, a lot of what they go through, they've been hiding who they are for so long um, and then have faced just awful situations in their home country that even being able to speak about being LGBTQI, um, is difficult for them. Um, yeah. And a lot about what kind of healthcare they can get, what they can speak to their GP about. Many don't really know if they, if they are registered with a GP, um, that they can ask about mental health and that there are options for like therapy and counseling and medication. And also, yeah, knowing what, knowing sort of other things that they can access, like, like healthcare costs they can get um that they you know something that they should just be automatically enrolled in for getting free healthcare they actually do need to apply most of the time so we can help with that um and linking them in with other organizations just so so they can get the sense of community but also uh so they can get evidence for their claim so they can get letters from organizations say yes this person is lgbtqi plus and yeah and just and and speak them through what to expect from the asylum process because the Home Office don't really give any clear guidance. If they're in London, we can help them find a solicitor. But if they're outside of London, we can talk to them about how they can find a solicitor and what a good solicitor is and what they can expect.
0: That sounds really useful, that kind of like holistic support. Um, I think it's really important. In terms of, you said a bit about stereotypes in the asylum interviews. Can you expand on that a bit?
1: Yeah, I think it's... um, The Home Office uh, will believe that you're a gay man more if you're uh overtly camp than if you're not and if you're a butch woman they'll believe that you are a gay woman they yeah they like a traditional story of coming out so that sort of internal struggle realizing you're gay and then having a an experience with the same-sex partner and then coming out to everyone whereas obviously that's just not what happens for most people uh especially in other countries where they they are just hiding yeah they just suddenly get caught and they just have to flee it's not something that they have traditionally come to terms with in in that sort of like that that almost what what um and i d- i don't even think it's true of people in the uk who grew up here have that traditional coming out story but i think yeah they look for that um sort of yeah tv story of realizing internal struggle and then coming out and if you have a different story or and even if you're religious um they will question well why are you religious if this religion teaches that you can't be gay which is obviously just not how faith works and it's not how people are
0: my goodness so most of the people you deal with have they fled their countries and become refugees due to their sexuality is that the reason? yes i think yeah it's it's a really tricky situation isn't it we spoke in the previous episode about when they come and they have these asylum interviews and they're expected to know like lgbt groups and obviously the country they've come from has none so i think yeah it's really interesting people notice that so you kind of spoke a bit about the general work you do what does a typical day look like for you at rainbow migration
1: um it can i mean it can change Every day, I normally try to book in calls with people, um, so we'll either have a weekly catch up, or um, I'll say, you know, we'll, we'll talk at this time, and so I can get that sorted. But often there's there's an emergency which comes up. Someone might be homeless because they're not allowed to stay with their friend anymore, so we need to get them emergency accommodation from the Home Office. Um, they might be in urgent need of a solicitor because they've got a case hearing coming up, um, and it's. Well, it's not that easy to find a legal aid solicitor. Like we, I always have been able to find someone eventually, but it can just be a urgent rush of messaging everyone we know and being like, please, can you take this on? Um, and yeah, someone could just be having a, a mental health crisis. They could be feeling really low. It's not all like urgent or crisis. Like I do have absolutely lovely calls with people as well where we are just catching up and I am just someone that they can talk to about their lives because they don't really have uh, much support around them. Um, and yeah, every two weeks I run the men's support group, um, over Zoom, which is lovely. It's about 14 people. We all just, yeah, we can chat about the asylum system. We can chat about their problems with their housing or solicitors, and we can just talk about their experiences really. Um, and everyone just has that safe place to share without judgment. So even if people are living with friends or if people are in accommodation where there aren't any issues, It still isn't always easy for them to speak openly about uh, either being queer or um, the specific issues they're facing, they know they have a safe place.
0: That sounds really valuable. In this, what kind of time frame are we talking about? I'm assuming it is quite different, but generally how often, how long before the asylum claims?
1: Absolutely ages, and it's taken longer and longer since the pandemic. Um, Well, we've had people before the pandemic, I think like four years just for one claim, not even being refused and then going to court, just on their first claim, still waiting. People are waiting, I think, like a year and a half, two years for their main interview to come up. And then after that, they could get a decision in five days, or they could get a decision a year later. It's not as if they're in a queue and waiting their turn. The Home Office don't seem to actually have... There's, there's no rhyme or reason to how they are assessing cases or pulling people up. You really just don't know. And even when the court, if they do go to court to appeal, and the court can tell the Home Office to do something by some point, the Home Office can just reply on the last day of that month saying, no, we need more time, we're not going to do it, and then a month later. So we've had, yeah, we've had service users just month to month to month, even when the court's told the Home Office to do something, they haven't acted. So it can be... I would say I, I I don't think anyone at the moment is uh, getting their main interview and a decision within a year. Um, and I'd say on average about you're waiting two, three years and maybe more. And that's living in poverty. That's, you know, 40 quid a week. If you're getting that home office support in home office accommodation, just unable to start your life. You can apply for permission to work after a year um, of waiting. But even then, it's only on the shortage occupation list, which is often highly skilled jobs, um, which even if they have the relevant experience and qualifications, those qualifications aren't recognised in the UK. Um, and that, I mean, they have added care jobs to that and teaching to that list now, which is good for some. But honestly, most of the people that I support need that support. They can't. They can't I, there, there are some I work with that are able and really good at being carers for other people. But I think if you're looking at the vast majority of the population that's seeking asylum in the UK, then not, they not—they don't have the uh, the sort of lifestyle that that you can be a carer for someone when you're dealing with your own stuff.
0: Uh, that absolutely makes sense. I think it's this, like you say, <clears throat> like you say, the forty pounds a week and living in housing that's not always suitable, and then you read in the newspapers that they're living in five-star hotels and taking all this money i think it's just really important that people hear those kind of statistics and people are just in limbo like you say they can't start their lives i think that's really valuable work how you said that you're still working online at the moment how has the pandemic affected the work that you do
1: um so i joined uh rainbow migration in the pandemic so i've always uh, been working online um but i think yeah just The increase in isolation. So I was, uh, my role was funded because of the increased pressure from the pandemic. They were getting a lot more calls, a lot more people that were isolated Mm -hmm. in need of support. So they uh, raised money for for my role to be able to do that. Um, Yeah, when when everything shut down, um, when there was lockdown, an already isolated group of people just became far more isolated. Uh, Mental health issues were just, yeah, exacerbated from that um and yeah just not being able to get any support even going out they you know these people might the people seeking asylum often rely on going to churches or food banks and mm-hmm. stuff like that um and any sort of sense of community where they would you know they'd get a hot meal or something um and even that basic need was just taken away
0: it's just awful i think people can relate a bit more to that feeling of isolation like due to the pandemic but like you say this is already a group of people that are very isolated. In terms of support that you give, have you found that it's mostly isolation that people come to the support groups for?
1: I would say more than more than half of my service users, uh, yeah, are in uh, uh, newly in the UK and don't have anyone. Like they don't have any links, and even if there are family here, they're family that they can't talk to because because they're LGBTQI plus and they don't accept them. Um, and I think even. Like, as people are here longer, they do manage to build uh, support around them, and they do get friends, and they do get community. Um, But I think they still aren't able... So, yeah, I think many of my service users don't tell the people that they know that they are either seeking asylum or they're seeking asylum because of their experiences. So they do have support in one way, but they're often not able to be completely honest and open with their friends in in a way that they can just talk to us, and know that the, you know that's exactly why we're here. We are here to support you because you are seeking asylum because you're LGBTQI+. Um, whereas I think there is still a massive stigma that they either hold with them from where they came from, um, or also because you know I don't think uh, the UK has a positive attitude towards people who are seeking asylum at all.
0: What do you feel is lacking? in terms of kind of this sector you said that your role was um like they raised funds for it was that fundraising or government grants
1: i uh, know it's fundraising yeah it's completely yeah charity the government do not fund anyone.
0: yeah so if you this is a bit of a wide question but what do you feel could be done better to support these people
1: well it, I, essentially i don't think my role should exist um people who are seeking asylum should be allowed to work they should be allowed to rent uh they should be allowed to build their lives and and just live normally um they need to speed up the decision making process uh the fact that it's getting slower and slower when it was already slow before the pandemic is ridiculous um i see when you compare it to other immigration applications they have to make a decision within a certain time asylum is the only one where they don't um, they shouldn't detain people. It's, you know, indefinite detention is inhumane. They don't know when they're gonna be released. If at all, they can be in there for years or they could be in there for days and find out on the day that they're getting released. Like it's just, yeah, it's, it's complete limbo that, that you're in. Um, they, they should be able to qualify for mainstream benefits. They shouldn't be living on 40 pounds a week. No one can live on 40 pounds a week and actually live well. Um, and they should be able, to, yeah, they should be able to work in roles that they want to work in. They should be able to rent, um, and even like the, the you said earlier, like they're living in these hotels, is just because the home office haven't sorted their accommodation, and because they're not making decisions quick enough, people are in the accommodation that they do have longer, so they aren't moving anyone on. So they're because of their own awful system, they're spending so much money just because they won't let people work. And like, it's complete it's backwards way of thinking. But it's, it's just right winged bigotry, um, just to keep people in that situation. Even though it costs them more, it's not economic reason that they do it for. It's just hatred. Yeah, it's completely... Yeah, it's a complete unknown. And, yeah, I've got service users who have been waiting for years and occasionally they can sort of deal with it and just move on and... Well, not not move on, but sort of just accept that they are in that state and then it can just become too much and they can really have a crisis and be like, I can't do this. I just can't keep waiting any longer. And there's just nothing that us or a solicitor can do. It's and They can just... If, if, I think they just feel like they're just hitting their head against the wall, and just not being heard. Um, the way they ask for evidence to prove that you are LGBTQIA+. queer plus um, is is is. It's one of the first things I think most service users will speak to me about when they first come here and, and they're claiming asylum they're just like how do I prove that I'm gay like that's just a nonsense thing um, and it's, it's there's a massive culture of disbelief in the home office and we've always suspected but it became confirmed this year from people who worked in the home office that they have targets to reject claims they are encouraged to reject asylum claims and hit that number and if they are, Um, granting too many then they'll lose their job, they'll get fired like and you you won't progress in the home office if uh, you are granting asylum Um, and yeah, the accommodation should be better and especially access to LGBTQI plus only accommodation that's, I think that's one thing that all of my service users ask for Um, and especially uh, trans service users really feel Uh, that they can't be around, uh, they can't live with cisgender people because of their experiences, because they don't feel safe, and because they do receive abuse here, like in, in hotels. I think every single one of my trans service users has reported feeling unsafe, that they are either being bullied or harassed. And we can report that to the hotel, we can report that to Migrant Help, but often they don't want to, they don't feel safe, they're worried about... How it would affect their claim, even though it won't. But they there there is that culture of of not feeling safe and not feeling uh, empowered to report anything.
0: I don't really have any words. That's just it's just such an awful situation. Um, and the work you do is obviously so brilliant to support them. But it's just such a systematic change, isn't it? What do you find hardest about your job?
1: Yeah, the 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 fury at the system is is awful. Um, And I think also because of, so I've been here since November 2020, no one who's come to me as a new service user has been granted asylum, has been granted refugee status. Like I've had people that have been with us since before I joined and and they've been granted and that's wonderful. But I've never had that, that win almost from working with someone from the start. I'm still just working with people who I met in my first week and they're in exactly the same situation. And it is just, there's nothing you can say. There's not, We can purchase one-off things for them, but we don't have a massive budget. So eventually that you are just having often the same conversation with someone that you might've had a year ago and just trying to be there while they're waiting and just knowing the whole thing is unfair. Because there's, there's nothing more than, there's nothing more I can really do than listen and talk to them at that level. Uh, we can get everything in place, we can get them in suitable housing, we can get them a solicitor that's going to represent them. But they are just waiting in this system where they're living in poverty. And there's nothing else you can do.
0: Like like the fact that you've not had anybody get to that point, it's just, it just must be so difficult. Can I just clarify, are the solicitors that you find for them? Are these pro bono solicitors?
1: Yeah, we refer to Legal Aid solicitors. We also have... Um, on our website, we have like a list of uh, solicitors that are also like private, if people can pay for. But when I refer, I only refer people to gigal aid solicitors. Yeah.
0: And I noticed on your website that you speak about um like providing advice for people claiming asylum as a couple. Can you just talk hmm. to me a bit about that and how that works? Uh,
1: yeah, so we um, we have a, a like a monthly uh, sort of register that people can ask for help uh, if they are applying as a same-sex couple um, but that is one of advice um, with the solicitor. Uh, we don't provide any like support work for that we only provide support work for people who are seeking asylum. Um, but yeah they can call up, get booked in and just yeah, have a free chat with the solicitor about what they need to do to apply for a spouse visa. Yeah.
0: Does, the, does it change the asylum process at all trying to come as a couple?
1: Um, so yeah people uh, so if you're, if you're applying for a spouse visa the person here either needs to be an EU national or a, a British citizen and if you meet the criteria then it's a much much easier process like they have to give you a decision within six months you just have to tick boxes they have um, they can uh, disbelieve you again um, but they can say that they don't believe that you're a genuine couple Um, but often, I mean, so I used to be an immigration advisor, um, I worked with, uh, people who were making family applications and the process is racist. If you are from Australia or America and you're white, they're not going to question you. If you're from Bangladesh or somewhere like that, and you're marrying a person from Lithuania, they are going to instantly question, not believe that you're a genuine couple. Like, it's, it's, it's an absolutely racist system. Yeah, everyone I worked with that was white never got questions in the interview, never got anything. They just submitted the application and they were through. Um, whereas, yeah, if, if if you are not white and, you're, and, yeah, you're marrying someone from Eastern Europe, then they're just going to jump on that. Um, if you're coming to the UK and you're both seeking asylum as a couple, uh, you face the same issues, but... The home office stereotyping is that if you are in a relationship with someone of the same sex, then they're more likely to believe you. And often you can do a claim together, but you can also do claims separately. So one person, if they do get granted, it's far more likely that the next person will also get granted. Um, So yeah, it is, I mean, it is easier if you have a partner, which is really sad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then I guess if you have a partner, you're more likely to have that kind of support system with each other.
1: If you are in a couple and one person gets granted status first and you're both in home office accommodation that person will then be moved out because they can't stay in home office accommodation so they can be separated for some time and you can we can ask councils to house them together but they don't really have a duty to the other person so unless their partner can find a job very quickly and can rent their own place and then that partner can move in which how easy is that within one month to do? Um, they can be separated for a bit, so that can also be really hard.
0: It's awful, the whole system just seems so flawed in the UK. Is there anything else that you want to say?
1: I think the asylum system in general is awful for everyone, and i I don't think I don't think LGBTQI plus people are the only ones that are poorly affected by it. Um, like everyone is waiting for so long, everyone faces disbelief in their claims, everyone faces poor accommodation, the risk of that. Um, I think specifically with LGBTQI plus people, the, the risk of living in poor accommodation can be greater because they are living with people from their own countries that are the very people that they were trying to escape. People in, yeah, LGBTQI plus people in detention especially, there's nowhere for them to go. There's no safety. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I, I'm very negative about the whole thing. It's There's there's no nice thing to say other than I I, I love the people I work with. I think they're absolutely amazing people. I Yeah, they're, they're just my favourite people in the world. I can't believe how strong they are and how resilient they are. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it.
0: I think it's kind of nice to have that almost positive spin on such an awful thing but the fact that they you are providing the support and they do they are able to kind of come to terms a bit more with their own identity i guess if they've had to repress it for so long at least you know your support system helps them with their well-being their housing and being able to talk about who they really are which i think is really valuable
1: it's just sad that it exists really yeah i, I firmly believe that my role shouldn't exist um, I think we need a massive change in the political system. I think, I mean, this government is terrible for so many reasons. Um, but I don't, I don't even know if, if a Labour government would be any different because they run the same system, 15 years ago, and it's it's worse now. But it wasn't great then. Um, I think we need a massive change in public opinion in how the media reports on people seeking asylum, um, and just I. I I don't know if it's about educating people because the information is out there. Um, but I think people just don't seek it. They don't, they, they kind of have, I think lots of people do just have an idea in their minds of, of what an asylum seeker is and then revert to either nationalist or right-wing ideology or just ignorance. Um, and I think there is a culture of disbelief in the UK Like even uh, some of my friends have said to me, like, do you ever just not believe them? I'm like, that is not what this is about. This is about people who have come to this country and are in an absolutely awful situation. No one chooses this life. Um, But I think, yeah, I think the population as a whole, not maybe not as a whole, but I think a, a vast majority of the population don't really have that understanding that no one would choose this, no one would choose this.
0: Yeah, at Solidarity we've just run um, an End the Lottery campaign kind of talking about it is a lottery where you are born, the situations that you're born in, anybody. You're just lucky that you were born in the UK in a privileged position that you so easily could have been somewhere else, And that's all that separates you from a refugee is that you're just not living in a country that doesn't agree with your identity and it's not war-torn.
1: Yeah, and I, and yeah I think people do have that entitlement and sense of birthright whereas it's complete nonsense. I'm just, I'm so lucky to have been born here and be able to be gay here.
0: Well, the work that you do is so brilliant and obviously makes such a difference in supporting these people through such an awful process. So I'm just in awe of the work that you do um, and I think it's so valuable. Thank you so much.